Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Today, it's great to have Annie Murphy-Paul on the podcast. Annie writes about how the findings of cognitive science and psychology can help us to think and act more intelligently. Annie contributes to the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times Book Review, Slate, and Oh! The Oprah Magazine, among many other publications. She's also the author of a number of books, including The Cult of Personality, Origins, and most recently, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Annie, thanks for coming on the Psychology Podcast again after being our very first guest ever. <laughs> Thank you so much, Scott. I'm so happy to be back. You know, seven years later. Seven years. Wow. And look at all how the many... people you've talked to in those seven years. It's amazing. I was going to say, look how many books you've done since then. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I have not been as prolific as you. That is, sure. that is for sure. Oh, come on now. Um, I love your work, as you know, and I'm a big fan, and uh, this latest book is no exception. Uh, you know, in this new book, you invite the reader to, quote, think outside the brain. Um, can, you, can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit what that, what that means to you to think outside the brain? Sure, yes. Um, well, I, I borrowed the idea of the extended mind from two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, and their idea, which I think... I hopefully expanded upon and elaborated on is that we don't just think with our brains, we think with the world around us. And in my book, I explore in the, in sort of more minute detail what that means. Um, we think with our bodies, you know, our bodies below the neck. So because of course the brain is part of the body, but we think with the rest of our bodies, we think with the spaces in which we learn and work. And we think with the minds of other people and to, conceive of thinking in this way is, is um, uh, it's a departure from how we're used to thinking about thinking, which is, you know, everything goes on inside the head and all of our efforts at cultivating intelligence and um, effective thinking seem to be directed at improving how the brain functions. And I wanted to nudge people to think about 
well, what are those other resources that we pull into our thinking processes and how can we do that more skillfully? Yeah, you, you make the case that we pay too little attention to the body in discussions about intelligence. Um, I mean, just the whole language of, you know, that person's brainy, right? Right, I mean, right. No one says that person, I don't know, has a smart arm. <laughs> <laughs> but but why is that misguided? Tell us why that's misguided. Uh -huh, why we, uh -huh. we should talk about, you know, how it's not just the brain. And right. Well, that idea that um, the body has nothing to contribute to intelligence, I think that's rooted in the, a metaphor that really animates much of our thinking about thinking. And that is the computer, uh, sorry, the brain as computer metaphor. We think of the brain as being like a computer, like a, a, a processor of information. And that's actually not how human intelligence works. You know, we, we evolved... Um, we evolved in a setting that made use of our entire body all the time. Our movements, our gestures, the internal signals that rise up from within our body, all of these contribute to our thinking all the time. But again, we're used to thinking of thinking as happening only in the brain. And so we have a blind spot in a sense for all the ways that the body and its capabilities contribute to intelligent thought. Yeah, you talk a lot, a lot, a lot in your book about interoception. Very uh, exciting field. It's uh, tied up with this uh, emerging research on embodied cognition, um, which mm -hmm. you draw upon for your book for sure. Um, can you tell us a little about what interoception is, and maybe even uh, individual differences in that? Because I'm I'm very interested in the individual differences aspect. Yes. Yeah. So interoception is a kind of um, fancy technical word for gut feelings. You know, those feelings that arise within your body that give you a sense of, of something, of knowing something, but that the notion doesn't seem to come from your brain. It actually feels like it's coming from within your body. And in fact, just like we have all these sensors that take in information from the world outside, we have sensors located all throughout the inside of our body that send our, the brain this continuous flow of information about how the body is doing, um, whether balance, a state of balance is being maintained, what actions need to be taken to maintain a state of balance. And in terms of individual differences, it does seem to be the, the case that people are, are really widely distributed across the spectrum in terms of how sensitive they are to their internal signals, how attuned they are to those signals, you know, the, the sort of standard test of interoceptive sensitivity is, is the heartbeat detection test. So it's like, and, and the, the, how that works is that people are asked to name the moment when their heart is beating. And what's interesting is that some people immediately take to this task and say, oh yeah, I, I, I know when my heart is beating. And other people are like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I have no idea when my heart is beating. And it's the same, you know, the, the heartbeat detection test, the heartbeat is a kind of proxy or stand-in for the whole range of interoceptive sensations that we feel. And, and across all those um, many interoceptive sensations, people are different in terms of how sensitive they are to those sensations. And it's not entirely clear why those individual differences exist. It may be uh, ge partly genetic and maybe partly the kinds of messages that people got growing up from their caregivers about how legitimate it was to pay attention to those internal signals and, and take them seriously. You know, some people, um, 
we're told, you know, you're not hungry, it's not dinner time yet, or, you know, um, or, or we're kind of encouraged to put those internal signals aside. And I think um, more generally in our society, there's not, we don't have a lot of patience for or, or um, affinity for those internal signals and really taking them seriously. So um, I think all of us, uh, no matter where we stand on that spectrum of, of introceptive attunement can probably benefit from from becoming more sensitive to those internal signals and cues yeah does is mindful meditation uh does that alter interceptive abilities it seems to uh it seems to have that effect in particular the activity that is often a part of mindfulness meditation known as the the body scan where you pay yeah. uh objective non-judgmental accepting open-minded attention to whatever sensations rise up from your body. And you, you might even kind of go part by part, you know, like, um, first feeling what's, what's there to be felt in your feet and in your legs and in your hips and in your stomach, and then all the way up through the body and just being very aware of what those feelings are, which, you know, in the hurry and bustle of every day, we often don't check in with our bodies in that way. But it's, it's a very easy way to kind of just as I say, check in with yourself and see what you are feeling on the inside. Nice. Yeah. Um, that's also good for going, going to bed at night. I like to do a body scan. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, mm. It helps mm-hmm. me uh, relax at the end of the long day. Um, mm. But there, there are profound implications in, in individual differences in this. Um, you know, uh, people, a lot of mental disorders and, and other things like, like psychopathy, like psychopaths have an, have an altered interception. Um, uh, the feedback they're getting, they're not in touch with, uh, and they're also it, it kind of uh, limits them from being able to learn from their mistakes as a result. Um, I had not know. heard that. Wow, that's so interesting, Scott. I had I had read about interoception being implicated in um, faulty interoception being implicated in things like eating disorders and addiction, mm-hmm. where so much much of those so so much of those behaviors are bound up in responding to bodily cues. And if you can't feel them, or if you feel them um, excessively, as is the case in, say, panic disorder, um, interoception can be um, really uh, the, the, the kind of locus of some of those mental conditions. Yeah. And also there's, uh, and this is really like front lines of science, I'm about to say, but there's an emerging model um, of OCD as purely an alteration of interoception. So kind of reconceptualizing really? all of OCD um, uh, from that vantage point and, uh, and, and what that does, uh, you know, like the OCD symptoms result, uh, kind of rethinking why exactly those symptoms are resulting and why um, people um, get so locked on certain things that they're not able to get in touch with uh, what it actually is and why it's driving their behaviors. Yeah. So, so interesting. So maybe those compulsive behaviors are yeah. are a response to uh, or no, a try in a way to try to address those internal um yeah. events. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So hmm. so stay like stay tuned for more on that research mm-hmm. on that. I mean it's you know it's a very emerging science. Mm. Uh you know you the, the word uh, we should talk about intelligence for a second. How do you define intelligence? You know, because you use that word in your book, and you talk about smarts. Um, you could see how an intelligence researcher in the field of psychology might beg to differ that some of the things you're describing as intelligence is intelligence. But no one, mm. as we both know mm. and agree, no one has like the stake on what that word means and what mm-hmm. counts. Mm-hmm. No researcher owns 
<laughs> the definition of it. Mm-hmm, so um, mm-hmm. I'd love to ask Andy Murphy Paul's definition. <laughs> I probably have a pretty broad definition, um, all things considered. I would say intelligence is the ability to think effectively in the world, to uh, learn and remember, to solve problems and to come up with new ideas. You know, so for me, it's really rooted and grounded in how effectively you can act in the world. It's less of a, you know, brain in a jar kind of, you know, what's your IQ and more like what can you do with that intelligence you have in terms of advancing your own goals. And that's, you know, uh, the cornerstone of uh, my, my mentor in grad school, Robert Sternberg's new book, um, which I think you wrote about uh, in, in mm. Washington Post or something, or Wall Street Journal. One of the, the, the Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, Boston, you wrote about that in Boston Globe, about uh, adaptive intelligence. So if you think about it as mm-hmm. really adapt, we can certainly bring in lots of the things you're talking about. Because um, mm-hmm. you make the point that um, the spaces around us expand our minds and can increase our expertise and knowledge and intelligence. Mm, mm, mm. What are some of the environmental conditions that you've identified? Yeah, well, one of them is um, spending time outdoors, which was a really interesting strand of research that um, at first I was a little skeptical about, to be honest, because the idea that, um, you know, going outside makes you feel good or makes you think better seemed like sort of, you know, tree hugging, nature loving nonsense. But the more I um, dug into that research, the more uh, I appreciated the the mechanism by which uh, psychologists think that those effects occur, which is, you know, that we evolved to uh, process the kind of information that is present in natural settings. And we, we process that information, that stimuli in a really effortless way, in a way that, you know, we find very pleasant, that we find um, very restorative in the sense that it doesn't demand, doesn't make the demands on our our cognition, it doesn't draw down our mental resources the way, um, you know, a highly stressful urban setting, or even like um, focusing very intently on symbols and concepts as we do in our work and our learning. Um, those, those things are really demanding of the brain, but being out in nature, uh, as, as many of us know from personal experience, you know, um, it's, it's restorative, it's relaxing, it, it engages our attention in a way that is pleasant and diverting, but it's sort of, sort of diffuse. It's not like we have to focus really intently on anything. And so after, um, we spent some time in nature, it's like refilling the tank, you know, of our, of our attentional resources. And then we can, we can go back to return to our work or our learning sort of refreshed and better able to focus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's intense living in a, in a big city. Mm -hmm. It's got to affect, um, all sorts of things, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, cognitively. Um, what are, what are, you know, you talk about cognitive loops in your Mm -hmm. book and I think of Westworld. You know, series where he goes, we all have yeah. our now, can you Can you talk a little bit about, about this? Sure, sure, yeah. I'm not sure how much I can say about Westworld, but um, but okay. in terms of cognitive loops, yeah. I, um, again, borrowed that idea from Andy Clark, the philosopher, who likes to say that humans are intrinsically loopy creatures, meaning that, again, we're different from computers in that a computer... If it's solving a problem or, or processing some information, it doesn't 
print out, you know, the information, like mark it up with a pen, like take a couple of days and come back to it, you know, show it to some colleagues and get their comments. And then, you know, that all those things are creating loops where you're, um, you're looping the information in through your own brain and then out into the world and in, into space, into the minds of other people, maybe through your body, through, through the movements of your body. And there's something about those creating those loops that enhances human intelligence. And that's not how computers work again, but that's how human brains appear to work. And so when we are, are trying to enhance our own thinking, I think it can be really helpful to think in terms of creating those productive and, um, um, enriching loops rather than keeping it all in our head where that information can't be improved and enriched and, um, and made better by, by those um, successive loops. Cool. Yeah. In that 1995 essay by Clark and Chalmers entitled the, uh, and say Andy Clark and David Chalmers called the extended mind, they asked the question, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? Now, that's a very interesting philosophical question um, mm -hmm. and, and with obviously uh, huge psychological implications. Um, do you see any boundaries at all? I mean, are there, it's, it seems intuitive to me, like intuitively to me that there are moments where my mind is just to myself. I want it to be. <laughs> when I'm fantasizing about things, I don't, I don't want that out of my head. Now, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, like, mm -hmm. it, 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 there, there certainly are moments when we're thinking, um, and it is just contained to our body, isn't that right? Hmm. Right? Or no, never? Is, is the, does the mind ever stop at the, at the, at the skull? Is that, is that the question? Like, or does it always yeah. extend? That's, yeah, does it, like, is there always an extended always ex mind? Yeah. I think I would say there always is an extended mind. I've never been asked that question, so I'm, I'm really thinking about it. But for one cool. thing, the fact that we have language, the fact that we have structures of thought and conventions of thought, those are all relics or artifacts of our interactions with other people, right? So in a sense, we have no thoughts without other people, without our social experience of a lifetime. So I think from the very beginning, our minds are extended. I don't know that there's any way around that. Because of their influence, um, like the influence of the environment on the thoughts we're thinking. Yeah, and we're always doing our thinking in a particular body. We're always doing mm. our thinking in a particular place. Mm. We're always doing it in some kind of social context, even when we're alone. So, yeah, I don't think I don't think thought is ever not extended. You know, as you know, I'm very interested in like genius and uh, uh, giftedness, giftedness and um, and kids that uh, can do amazing calculations in their head and uh, are capable of learning far beyond their years. Um, there's a certain there's a certain part where they they can claim the credit, you know, for their brain that their their unique brain they have. And then there's another hand of a lot of the some of the rich resources a lot of them may have had, and and aspects mm. that you put the table. So it seems like there's. There's a mix. Like I don't, I don't think you you want to. You're going as so far as to suggest that, you know, there's there's no uh, brain processes uh, that are. You know, I don't get that from you. Right? Mm -mm. Yeah. No. No. I ne would never want to say that the, that the brain is not central to thinking. I just I I like to think of it in terms of redefining the brain's role, not as the mm. place where it all happens, but rather 
a more dynamic kind of role of like, I like to compare it to an orchestra conductor, like to someone to uh, the entity that's coordinating all these resources and bringing them all together. And when we think about thinking in that way, to me, it opens up all these options because now you're, it's not a matter of just sitting there working your brain until the task is done. You have all these um, other resources to draw on. You know, maybe you need to go for a walk or maybe you need to have a conversation with a friend or maybe you need to act out, you know, what you're the problem you're trying to solve with your body and with your gestures. So um, to me, it's a very optimistic vision of, of, of our potential and how we can expand our potential. Definitely optimistic. Definitely. And optimistic and also, um, uh, as you, as you point out, it can give us compassion for, for people mm. in suboptimal conditions. So it's not mm -hmm. always optimistic in the sense, you know, you know, um, some people are in certain environments where their extended mind is, is dreck, as my father would say, um, you know, so. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm just keeping I it think... real. <laughs> I'm keeping it real. <laughs> and that's why I think there's a, a, there is another blind spot here when we're talking about judging people on what presumably or, or ostensibly their brains are able to produce and, and um, judging their, their outcomes as if their brains are, are, are the end of the story. But because the raw materials that we have to think with are such an important aspect of our ability to think intelligently. It matters the quality of the raw materials that we have access to and whether we know how to use them skillfully. So once you bring that aspect into awareness, it seems crazy to me to, to judge people on their, their ability to think intelligently as if all that matters is inside their brains and not to look at the wide angle lens of like, but, you know, what are they free to move their bodies? Are they in a place that is quiet and orderly and supportive of of intelligent thinking? Are they do they have a network of mentors and peers and teachers who can help them think? You know, all those things matter hugely to how intelligently we're able to think. And those things are not in any way equitably distributed. Great point. And they're also, um, you know, just that doesn't look like what an IQ test is at all. I mean, I can't no. individualistic as right. possibly. possibly right. Um, and you're supposed to sit there without moving and you're in a strange place without any of your usual cues around and you're not allowed to talk to your neighbor who's taking the IQ test alongside you. I mean, it's it's an incredibly brain bound, as Andy Clark would say, brain bound approach to intelligence. And it misses the to me the vast you know repository of human intelligence that we draw on all the time in ordinary real life situations yeah it seems uh like covid is relevant to this discussion as well because there must have been uh, implications um of living during the pandemic um for um our bra our brain bound way of thinking we, we realize just how extended the mind really is during this time um is that right yeah oh i i really think so yes i mean we, I think during the, during the period when things were really shut down, we were all kind of brains in front of screens for months at a time, you know, and I think a couple of insights came out of that for me. One was that, you know, if we're going to 
take seriously this model of, of grit or the growth mindset, wherein, you know, the idea is if you just work your brain harder and harder, if you give it more exercise, the way, uh, you know, you exercise the muscle, it gets stronger. A lot of us were working our brains a whole lot during the pandemic, because we had no commute, we had no chats with coworkers, we were just, you know, working, working, working. And it's not as if we, many of us did not feel that our brains were at their best, or were at like in fine form, you know, because there were a lot of other things that we were now being deprived of that we were being cut off from because of the pandemic. We may not have been moving as much. A lot of us just sort of sat in front of our our computers day after day. We weren't visiting new and stimulating places. We weren't interacting with people in person. So, you know, one professor said to me that he felt cut off from his extended mind because he wasn't allowed to go into his university office. And the way his books were arranged and and the shelves around him formed a kind of external memory and an external um, body of knowledge that he was not cut off from because he couldn't be in his office. So I think the fact that our minds are extended became much more apparent to, to many of us during the pandemic. The implications for uh, children is, is striking. Um, in fact, uh, Angela Duckworth, who uh, you know, you were just talking about grit a, a few mm-hmm. seconds ago, um, she co-authored a big study on some of the implications of um, children uh, not being able to go to school and uh, mm. implications for their well-being. And uh, and you know, she found there, there's huge implications, um, mm. very very high levels of anxiety, and uh, and mm. it just, I think that just really goes to it goes to show the extent to which. Um, just learning a contextually, you know, mm. is not mm. is not all that matters for school children. You know, <laughs> no, having their no. social belonging needs met, have their having their other uh, basic needs and and growth needs met. Right. Yeah. yeah, the idea that all that matters is the transfer of information from one mm. brain to another is such a limited and constrained idea of what learning is and how it happens. And it's it's not an accurate view at all of how that happens for kids or for adults, for that matter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think I want to talk about information. We both cocked her at the same time. Did you see that? <laughs> <laughs> is there something there about it, about the extended mind where we were in, we were so in sync that we both at the same pause did the same hand, hand I, gesture? I, I think so. I mean, I write in the chapter on, on interoception about how the way we know how another person feels is that we subtly mimic their um, their facial expressions, their their posture, their gestures. And then we kind of read that off our own bodies and that gives us that that creates a channel for us to understand the otherwise inaccessible feelings of another person. So maybe in that moment, Scott, you and I were engaged in that kind of yeah, interoceptive so dance. Yeah, I'm <laughs> glad we're able to illustrate that. People who watch the YouTube video, you can watch that happen in real time, unplanned. <laughs> uh, I do want to uh, I do want to uh, segue into talking a little about uh, information overload, a really important topic that you talked hmm. about in your book, and I really enjoyed that discussion in your book, um, hmm. and uh, the extent to which you know we have this bombardment of information coming mm-hmm. us way too much for our conscious mind to register. Mm-hmm. And we are very uh, not, we're not that too privy to the extent to which our unconscious minds are, it's influencing our unconscious, right? In, in all mm-hmm. sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wondering if you could talk a little about, um, perhaps how people who design social media platforms or, or other sort of, um, news outlets, et cetera, might could take into account some of the principles you talk about in your book. Oh, so interesting in terms of information overload. I was thinking about that. Yeah, one. yeah, interesting. Okay, I have, yeah. I, I have two thoughts there. One is that cool. um, I make the argument in the book that 
are the biological brain is kind of operating at peak capacity at this point. And there's so much information coming at us. Our, our expertise is so specialized. Our problems, as you've made reference to a couple of times, are so daunting that the biological brain on its own is not really up to the task that we really have to acquire what I call a second education in, in thinking outside the brain at skillfully using these external resources in order to meet the, meet the moment, really, of, you know, what our world demands of us. Um, and then the other thought I had, you know, I, I talk about non-conscious information acquisition in the chapter on interoception because that was the explanation, you know, just like the nature-loving stuff, I initially approached the idea of, in, of um, intuition that's informed by interoception with a little bit of skepticism, like, mm, you know, gut feelings, like how often, like, how would that work? Like, that sounds a little mystical. But the idea or the um, research, what the research suggests is that, you know, as you were saying, we, there's so much information coming at us all the time, just in daily life that our conscious minds can't absorb it all. But we can store and register and store a lot of that in our in a non-conscious way in terms of noting patterns and regularities and but these these patterns are too complex for our conscious minds to really to for us to be able to articulate in a conscious way um so the way we have access to those those helpful patterns and um signals is is through the the those interoceptive cues you know that's what a uh a you know, a sudden sort of tightening in your stomach or a sudden elevation in your heart rate, that's what, um, that's your body telling you, you know, this, pay attention, this is something you've encountered before, you, you've, you've, you've ha maybe had a similar experience before, and this is how you acted, you know, so we get access to all that non, non-consciously stored information through the body. And that's why it's so important to be attuned to what the body is telling you. Otherwise, you're kind of missing out on, um, on all that, the richness of that information that you actually do possess. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good point. But mm. what you're talking mm. about, how is it different from intuition, how, how you know, rationality, decision-making researchers refer to as intuition? Um, is it similar? Is it, is it different? You know, because a lot of them argue that... Yeah, it, it always strikes me how much how, you know, it's such a strong current in our culture to want to see ourselves as perfectly rational as, as computing machines. And I just, I really take a different view that, you know, we have this incredibly rich source of, of wisdom and knowledge and information that's, that's there with us all the time in our bodies. And why wouldn't we take advantage of that? Not, not that we shouldn't be, that we should act on it uncritically. And in fact, I, um, describe an exercise in, in the book called keeping an interoceptive journal, which means um, sort of tracking, which involves tracking your interoceptive sensations and what they're telling you. And then if you act on them, how that, how that decision turned out, just um, looking at interoception and our, our bodily signals as another source of information that can possibly be very informative. Um, not that we should base everything on that, but I don't think it's smart to base everything on rush on pure rationality either. Yeah. So uh, it sounds like, you know, this is not what well, you're arguing is not at all incompatible with a mindful way of life. You know, you can mm -hmm. use that. You can be aware of the information coming from your body and you can also be mindful of, uh, of whether or not you want to uh, uh, apply it. 
you know. Right, so, right. Yeah. And it just to, you know, you mentioned expertise there a moment ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that the extended mind has implications for how we think about expertise, because I think our, our brain bound notion of expertise is that the expert does it all in his head, you know, that that he's the chess grandmaster who never has to has to, you know, do anything except sit there and cogitate, you know, and I think if you look at how experts actually operate in the in the real world, these are people who know how to use their bodies who know how to pay attention in a skillful way to their internal signals, who know how to use space, who know how to use relationships, that's in a way, the essence or the core of their expertise and their skill is that they do use all their extended mind in an incredibly um, skillful and effective way. And and that's something novices actually could emulate um, rather than thinking that as you become more expert, it, you become more brain bound. I think it's just the opposite. Yeah. And you, you extend it to uh, to culturally and socially. You say we're better together. Um, and, and <laughs> I think those are your th- those are your words, oh. Scott. But oh. but um, <laughs> but very characteristic, I think, of you. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> well, you do argue that engaging in synchronous activity—maybe those are your words—synchronous activity uh, with others mm-hmm. uh, is can be very beneficial. And uh, um, and I, th- I thought this was kind of cute. Uh, the effect of eating together as a family is heightened if food is served family style and it's very spicy. <laughs> yeah, not even just as a family, but as a group, like a, a team or a, a class of, of people. Um, yeah, because um, the way we get on the same page, you know, intellectually or mentally with people, um, we can do that by sort of hacking the our bodily systems, which... Um, which respond to synchronous movement, as you're saying, like when we when we're moving together, when your arm moves or when your head moves at the same time, my head moves. It it's it sort of um, flips a switch, what Jonathan Haidt calls um, the hive switch. You know, this like a which is his metaphor for like switching from an I orientation to a we orientation. When we're moving together, it feels kind of like we're one being, you know? And then when we not only move together as as one, but also have intense feelings or um, experiences, whether those are physiological experiences or emotional experiences, when we feel together, we also... Um, feel like we're, we can get on the same page mentally in a, a, a more effective way. So the idea behind eating together is like you're actually, there's something about eating together that's meaningful, of course, you're sharing resources, you're sharing food, but you're also in an informal way sort of synchronizing your movements, everyone's sort of lifting their fork to their mouths and chewing and, you know, and then also when you eat something spicy, you're all experiencing together this this um, physiological arousal. So there's a kind of glue that that um, binds a group together when they've had all these shared experiences. For sure. And a related concept in the cognitive science literature is socially distributed cognition. Very mouthful. But, um, <laughs> yeah, better you, together is much, much more uh, concise. Socially distributed cognition. <laughs> did you, um, I mean, you, the years you took writing this book, did you delight in, in nerding out over the scientific papers? Mm. I mean, I can just imagine oh you like spending days uh, of where you weren't necessarily writing, but you were going on Google Scholar and looking, you know, looking at all the latest kind of stuff. 
Scott, you know me well. Yeah. I think yeah, I, yeah. I, I imagine you have done the same thing too. I have a sneaking feeling. Um, oh, yeah, yeah I, I totally geek out about the journals and that's why this book to- took me so many years because mm. it does cover a lot of different, um, disciplines, a lot of different strands of research. And yeah, oh, I, I totally geek out about the research. And what's exciting is that there's more, of this research coming out every day, you know, on embodied cognition, on situated cognition, on socially distributed cognition. I really feel like we're maybe at the, at a turning point where, you know, the, I think the, the old brain bound conception of thinking is just not adequate anymore. And we're realizing that there's so, there's so much more to what goes on when we, when we think. And so uh, to me, the, the research is pointing in really exciting new directions. Yeah, yeah, really exciting. Well, well, along those lines, is there what do you? What's some recent stuff that you're most? What's your most excited about? What are you most excited about? Hmm. Mm. You had to choose. Oh gosh. Um. Well, we haven't really talked so much about gesture. I find gesture really fascinating because I tend to be someone who talks with her hands a lot, and I love the idea, for example, that. Uh, often our most advanced or most cutting edge or our, our newest ideas that we can't quite put words to yet show up in our hands first. You know, there's in some movement of our hands, we manage to capture some element of what we're trying to express verbally. And then we can read off that self-generated information. You know, we can read off our own hands that can inform our sort of emerging verbal explanation for um of, of what we're what we're trying to get at, and so I love the idea of um, not only encouraging students and others to to move their hands, but also creating occasions where gestures are more likely to happen. Like people are more likely to gesture when they're asked to give an impromptu explanation for something in front of an audience, because to speak in an impromptu way like that is really cognitively taxing. So we tend to offload some of that burden onto our hands. We also gesture more when there's something to gesture at, you know, some kind of artifact or model or map or diagram. And so, and, you know, the research suggests that the more we gesture as we're trying to work something out in our heads, the, the, the greater our understanding, the, the, the um, more accurate our memory. So we actually want to be getting people to gesture as much as possible. I, I find that really fascinating. It is fascinating. It also can be used as a manipulation to, uh, tool for marketers um, hmm. who don't really want you to pay that much attention to the words they're saying and want hmm. to kind of distract you with their hand motions. I found that just because, of, like, I, I, um, I, I, I grew up like with an auditory disability, so I became hyper, hyper attuned to nonverbal communication and hmm. people's BS. Hmm. And, um, and 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 I actually cringe when I watch some of these. Uh, people, you know, like like motivational gurus and people, you know, like uh, some of some of them on YouTube or whatever, be like hmm. the five things that will help you brain, you know, and and they're like mm-hmm. they overdo it with the hand motions, but mm-hmm. like I actually listen mm-hmm. to the words they're saying, and I'm like, eh. mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know about that. So that's can be used really as a, interesting, Scott. You know, I I you know I do I write in the book about how um, entrepreneurs who are making a pitch for their their proposed venture when they employ the skilled use of gesture they they attract more funding. Now they exactly. maybe they're they that goes for the charlatans as well as the the earnest well-meaning entrepreneurs. But um, you know I tend to think of gesture as 
another channel of communication. And so that channel could be used, could be used for good or ill, I suppose. Absolutely. I mean, it can be used, like when I said be used to manipulate, I mean, that can be good, you know, you know, when, mm. or you want to want to convince or influence me or she's, you know, maybe influence right. is a better word than manipulate, but, hmm. um, hmm. Oh boy, what what other topic? What have I missed? What have I missed? I feel like we covered we covered a lot. Thinking with we our bodies, thinking with our surroundings. Yes. Now, what? Yes. Well, here's here's something I think uh, is super cool about your book: the way that we can over um, the way we can unload our ideas mm-hmm. into like notebooks and mm-hmm. other things. I've I've long argued in the field of intelligence that we focus too much on working memory capacity as the core aspect of human intelligence, and that you can get a lot more intelligence out of people, especially neurodiverse people uh, who are mm. working memory issues um, by allowing them to take these IQ tests or things by unloading it from mm. their mind. So I've made that argument. I think it's just, it, mm. it, it dovetails nicely with, with a lot of the things mm. you're talking about. That is interesting, Scott. I mean, I've been arguing since the book came out, I've made the point on a bunch of podcasts that people who who learn differently or think differently are often kind of leading the way in terms of extending the mind because because mm. their brains don't work the same as as other people's because they're neuro neuro atypical is that how you mm. say it um neuro-atypical, yeah they they neurodivergent um, neurodivergent yeah they have had to um develop ways of thinking outside the brain and using skillfully using resources um you know and not and not thinking in the conventional way, but, um, but in developing often very ingenious solutions um, that involve thinking outside the brain. So, and that there's a lot we have to learn from people um, who, who've encountered challenges in conventional classrooms and workplaces, you know, because they've um, been forced by necessity to come up with really ingenious ways of thinking outside the brain. Yeah. And cognitive offloading as you mentioned, is, is one of those ways, just getting, I think all of us can benefit from getting that stuff out of our head onto physical space where we can manipulate ideas as if they were objects, you know, or navigate through them as if they were a, a physical three-dimensional landscape, because those are the things we evolve to do and we do so effortlessly and easily. And um, to keep it all in our heads, again, doesn't doesn't do justice, doesn't draw on all this, the capabilities and resources that we have as human beings. Yeah. What's the benefit of like copying experts? Hmm. Yeah. Well, in that chapter on experts, I talk about, and I'm, I know you know this research about how um, by virtue of being experts, you know, experts find it very difficult to articulate for a novice exactly how they do what they do because it's become automatized for them. It's become second nature in a way that they're not even, that's not even accessible to them anymore. And yet our systems of education, our systems of workplace training, they rely on experts teaching novices. So we really need to think harder, I think, about how experts can become more legible examples um, for novices so that they can become more easily copied because that, you know, that's another bias in our culture that I'd like to push back against this idea that innovation and originality is always better than emulation and imitation because, um, you know, imitation used to be at the core of, of education for centuries. That was, it was understood that to master 
a body of knowledge or a particular skill, you emulated the people, the masters, the people who did it the best, and you learned how to do it sort of from the inside that way. And only then could you add your own twist. You know, there was a um, famous um, professor of composition and rhetoric who liked to say, imitate that you may be different, you know, like, but you can't, but you first have to uh, master the fundamentals and, and uh, imitation can be the most um, efficient and effective way of doing that. So I'd love to see the stigma that that attaches to imitation uh, currently in our society. To I'd love for that to fade away. Yeah, I love that. And, uh, but not in like a John Allaire sort of way. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't no. We'll move, God, we'll, no. We'll, yeah, we'll just move beyond that. But, but yeah, there's no limits to this. No, no plagiarism. Um, yeah, 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 no, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, yeah. no. <laughs> um, More like an apprenticeship, I would apprenticeship, say. Apprenticeship, apprenticeship, yeah. mastering, mastering. Right, um, right. And um, sharing expertise, uh, so important for a lot of scientific discoveries. Um, but I've always been fascinated with this idea of multiples, you know, ideas, um, yes. great ideas that seem to just be in the air, you know, if you have a certain level of expertise. Um, and obviously that, that expertise is not in a vacuum, is not in a vacuum, right? I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in some cases it is, though. There was, there's the, this guy, I think, who independently discovered and came up with calculus with, with literally no knowledge of this, the other information that had been going on. So it's that's amazing, isn't it? Do you, do you have a theory about that, about why that happens? Um, it seems like so there's two separate phenomena. So the, the multiples one, I do think it's, it's related to what you're talking about. I do think that um, when there's a certain, over, a certain amount of shared expertise in the air um, and um, mm. people, there is like something that's ripe if you have that mm-hmm. expertise and the intelligence, the talent, the background, uh, the, the, the resources, all these perfect – there are multiple people with perfect storms that have the perfect storms that mm. they can independently mm. come up with it. But I mm. don't have a good suggestion. There's another different phenomenon because I was just thinking like, are there instances where a great discovery happened and there really wasn't great shared expertise? And there are a few instances throughout human history where mm. that is the case. Mm-hmm. And now I'm not going to get all ancient aliens on you. I don't think it's like, you know, they were tapping into the Akram record or whatever it's called on ancient aliens. Actually, I was in an episode of ancient aliens on genius. So that's why I joke about this because I was actually the expert in that episode. And I, they manipulated wow. what I said in a way wow. that I was trying to be very um, scientific about it. And then like this guy right. was like, what could it be that they were tapping into the aliens? <laughs> But um, I didn't say that. But um, but 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 there, there's got to be an, an explanation for it. And um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think that maybe you know there 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 is something to be said for talent. There is something to be said for um, uh, you know for some of these prodigies. These child prodigies have a certain genetics that um, that ha- they can be traced to their ancestors who had certain expertise. So I'm not actually rolling out the idea of epigenetic transmission. You know. And that's mm, that, that mm, be shared expertise mm. throughout the ages, inter, intergenerationally. Mm. So that's another really wow. interesting topic. That is, yeah. that is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so talk fun about c- talk about here. cutting edge. I know, I know. It really is, Scott. It really is. What do what <laughs> so, did we talk about in that first uh, that first one that I, I seven years ago that I recorded with I you more about the science read- of learning. The science of learning, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I want to yeah. listen to it again after this. <laughs> yeah, see, see how far I we will both too. Come. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that would be really fun. We know so much more now. <laughs> We're so much yeah. smarter now. There are a lot of things I wish I didn't know. <laughs> I know, I right? I, right? Naive. I think I was more naive then. Um, right. More, more That's innocent. a line from a Bob Seger song. Wish oh. I didn't know now what I what. Yeah. Wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. right. But there's something that I certainly am happy about. Um, I, I, I would I'd like to leave today's uh, episode with a quote that I saw you you write uh, in an interview you you had you someone conducted on you. You said acknowledging the reality of the extended mind might well lead us to embrace the extended heart. Mm-hmm. Now we didn't bring up the heart today at all. The you know, heart. But, but I thought we could end on this note just because there's so many people hurting right now. There's so many people suffering. Yeah. Like, I can't like yes. I just can't not think about it. You know what I mean? Like I do these interviews, but like my brain just keeps thinking about I know. I know. um how how blessed we are in a lot of ways, you know. I know. I know. Um, even being able to have the freedom of having this conversation. Um yeah. yeah, can you talk a little bit about how you know, just like end on that note, you know, how the extended mind uh, can help mm-hmm. us embrace the extended mm-hmm. heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's so important to see people in their full humanity and their full humanity means their bodies, you know, that we're in, we're in these fragile animal kind of bodies, you know, and we are embedded in a place and, and the place we are affects us so deeply and we're connected to each other. We're not individual atoms just sort of floating around you know we're really embedded in a network of 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 other people and we have to take care of each other you know i mean to me that's what i was trying to say with the idea of the extended heart that maybe if we see each other for the in the in, in the round you know in in full that maybe we can have some more compassion for each other and extend our heart feeling to them and not see them just as you know, lumps of intelligence of larger or smaller size, you know, reducing people to how well they're able to take a test, you know, that I find that offensive. And I'd love to encourage people to see each other as full human beings. Thank you, Annie. Um, You always bring uh, so much knowledge to the table. I feel like you, every new book you do, does it feel like you've earned a new PhD at the top? (laughs) It feels like that to me, too. God, maybe I'll just like write like a rip off of this book a few more times so I can like get my get my uh, money's worth out of it. But I'll probably write another PhD with the next book. I'll probably get another PhD with the next book, too. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks so much for being on the Psychology Podcast. Thank you, Scott. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com.